Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all 7 continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Josh, how are you, brother? Hey, good, mate. Good, good to be on with you. Yeah, it's it's really kind. Um, it's really a it's really kind you've come on the show. Um, it's great that you're over there in Canada. I was there in ninety one or ninety two, I think. Uh, you're you're in Alberta. Uh, yeah, Alberta. Yeah. 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 Is it? Did you say Calgary? Yeah, outside of Calgary, so Western Canada, near the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, they have they still got the big ski jumps there in Calgary? Yeah, 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 you can still see them from the uh, Winter Olympics back in the day. Yeah, that's right. Well, I had a great, had a great, great, great time there. You were born in Canada, but served in the British Royal Marines. That's correct, yeah, yeah. What? So... Uh, yeah, I was a pretty adventurous kid, and uh, yeah, just ended up ended up in the core, sort of thing. So there's been a few uh, few Canadians since. Well, when I was in, there was a few Canadians, uh, South Africans, Aussies, a couple of Kiwis, you know, people from the Commonwealth. So a mix of other adventurous kind of guys. So, do you know Cassidy Little? Um, I think I met him briefly in training. But uh, didn't serve with him after that. Yeah, because he's uh, obviously fellow Canadian. Yep. And Andy Bradsell, is that a name you've ever come across? No. He was actually born here in Grimsby and he lived most of his life in Canada. He okay. Joined, he joined the same time, or around about the same time I was in, and we were really good friends. And um, he got shot dead in Mosul as a security guard okay quite a quite a quite a shock <laughs> that that was to to hear yeah that. Um, so yeah how did you so how did you end up joining the marines yeah i was uh just looking for something something to do something adventurous i knew the military was something that i that i wanted to do uh so my mom actually gave me a a movie or no sorry it was i read a book a world a book on world war ii about the commandos i think it was 401 commando i was always reading a lot of different books and uh so i looked a little bit more into them because i didn't know anything about them and uh saw that i could join the british military uh looked at my options for that and saw oh you can do the marines well i'm gonna head head in that direction and see what i can do so uh yeah ended up ended up coming over for the prmc um past that and then i had to go back to canada uh wait five six months for uh, my security clearance to come and uh that was in 2005 and then towards the end of 2005 i uh went across and joined wow and how so how was it your first time in england yeah it was my first time in england coming across and i remember coming into london and uh i remember one of the first things that i thought was how are more people not getting shot here? Because everyone was so packed in on the tube and it was just hustle and bustle everywhere. And I was always in kind of small towns, 
a little bit rural areas, you know, just wide open spaces. And I was just like, this is, this is absolutely mental. Um, all the accents, like we were speaking about earlier, uh, was just, just wild. So all of that was a shock to the system. And then, you know, getting into the culture of the core, which has its own unique culture and life of its own, as well as all the different cultures from Josh, throughout can I, the UK. Can I just say, sorry to interrupt, but something is rustling on, like on the desktop or something. Oh, sorry. Is that a little better? That 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 was the noise. Yeah. It okay. Was, it's just that people listening through their headphones will um, they'll want to kill us. Gotcha. We're commando, so they're not going to have an awful lot of luck. Not going to, yeah. No unless, unless they're good at fighting, and then they probably will. That's it. All right. <laughs> and it's it's really interesting because, to me, the word bootneck conjures up these hairy-ass British men. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, you're, you're in that family now, which um, it, it's... It's you know bootneck is not a term. Canada Canadian doesn't you know Canada doesn't yeah. instantly come to mind. It, it's you're 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 quite alone over there. I yes I am um, very much so you know especially when I I'm sure we'll get into it when I came back to Canada it was I was completely completely alone you know uh, probably if I put it on my CV or my resume they'd be like Royal Marines what's this you know like. Not a not a clue, sort of thing. But yeah. I've enjoyed it being a yeah. being a kind of thing. Yeah. So what what about the Mounties then? What's what? Why are they so famous in Canada? Uh, it's just like a quite an elite police force within Canada, sort of a federal police force, and they have uh, quite a steep history, as it were, um, within Canada. So that's kind of where they kind of get their mystique from um and they are quite good uh, at what they do and they do a wide variety of things so do they do they still ride horses or is that just yeah no it's uh it's a thing it's more ceremonial you know that sort of a thing but um yeah they still do parades with horses and wear the red sash and the big hat and all that sort of stuff so obviously i've got to ask you how was it landing in uh, what 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 was called foundation when you joined? It was called induction um, when I joined. Yeah, I think they thought brainwashing was a bit too too strong a term, so they called it induction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, induced into the art of killing other people. Yeah, um, it was a it was a shock to the it was a it was a it was a shock to the system. Um, I was I was pretty thick and pretty naive. Uh, as to what was fully going on, um, so I took a took a few bee stings to get me get me in the mindset, as it were. <laughs> but uh, yeah, once I rolled, got into the flow of things, I you know really started enjoying it. How old were you? Nineteen, nineteen. Yeah. So I did the did the PRMC when I was eighteen, and then nineteen when I started training. So. When you came over to do the PRMC, did, did you stay with people here or? Yes, I actually had uh, some friends of our family lived in High Wycombe. So I kind of went back and forth. And I was in I was in the UK maybe for 
three, four weeks in total doing all the recruiting process and all of that. And did you have to find the money for those two? Well, four, four flights. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. I did do all that myself. I was working at the time and saved all that money up and kind of made the plan of how I was going to pull off this big dream of mine sort of thing and organized all that. So I had to just jump on the train train here where I live, pay would have been about seven seven pounds for a ticket for a return. <laughs> I'm in and out in it, you know, I could, I'm up there in 40, 30 minutes or something. And yeah. <laughs> you've got to come across oceans. Oceans, yeah. So yeah, a bit a bit big, off. big culture shock then? Yeah, it was. Yeah, big culture shock. You know, everything everything was brand new, not just, you know, the core as it were that introduction but introduction to britain and uh its way of life and all of that was com- completely new so but it was a you know it was a it was i was on a big adventure right so I'd, it was it was just fun you know wide-eyed at every turn really mm. was it a shock to find british men are, are so big and handsome yeah you know um yeah <laughs> he said that enough said <laughs> it was uh yeah it was uh no i won't go down i gotta behave what 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 year was it 2005 2005 came across okay yeah yeah gosh yes makes my my joining up seem like so long ago yeah yeah i don't think the core doesn't seem to change a lot though does it it's probably not no no I think it's. I think it's got softer, just for the just from the perspective that young people are a bit nice, a bit nicer now. I I, I maybe I've got that. I mean, yeah. there were some quite odd nut types. When yeah. You there, there was when I was when I was in. Um, and in training as well as outside of training, you know, just interaction with the lads or whatever. Some of them were, you could tell they were genuinely pretty hard, you know, and then, but I mean, you get that kind of in all walks of life, right? Sort of thing. So, yeah, it's an interesting one because the, the guys you join the Marines with, generally speaking, you meet an awful lot of nice guys. Yeah. And it's more that we joined for the adventure. We, we I don't think any of us joined to kill people. I, I don't no, no. I don't think that's it. I think we just saw it as a real adventure, as a chance to prove ourselves at something and, you know, do something with our lives and one hell of a challenge and that kind of thing. And I almost feel, I almost feel for people that then get sent into combat and, and, and then, and then are, by definition are forced to to do these extreme acts because mm-hmm. because they're such they they're just nice nice mm-hmm. guys you know it, it, uh, people listening you'll either understand what I'm saying or or or, or you're not and I apologise if I can't explain it very well but it's I mean I look at you Josh you don't come across as like some you know <laughs> almost sociopathic killer <laughs> yeah no. I think um, 
Yeah, you get the guys that are very adventurous, um, probably very patriotic um, type type guys. And I think if you are, uh, you know, psychotic, as it were, um, sociopath or whatever, you know, you probably wouldn't put yourself through, you know, quite difficult training uh, type thing. You know, you'd, you'd probably just find another way to go go do those acts that you want to do, as it were. And, um, you know, definitely in my time when I joined, like, 2005, you know, I don't think anyone was under any illusions of where they were going to be going, especially if they went to join the Marines. You know, we we knew you were either going to Afghan or Iraq pretty much straight away or shortly after you pass out of training. So, and during that time in training, you know, you, you're hearing of people being killed. Uh, most of my training team had either been to Iraq or Afghanistan or both deployed in both places, as well as the Northern Ireland's and um, Kosovo and that sort of thing. So and bet, it was pretty. Um, I bet some of them were having to disappear off to funerals, weren't they? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, some of that was going on as well. So it was uh, the reality was there pretty, pretty straight away. You know, they were and we were told right away, like, you know, you finish training here, you will be deploying no matter what sort of thing. So we knew what was coming down the, the pipe for us. Mm. Yeah, I mean, when I was in training, I I. I kind of had it in my head I wanted 4-2 commando oh um it, it happened to be near where I lived but I think the main reason I wanted it is I knew they were going to Northern Ireland and that if I was going to be in the Marines I wanted to see some form of combat some some kind of active service and at least if I got it done in my first year of being in a commander unit it it was kind of done then you know the the it um I, I suppose I had a sort of juvenile or naive fear of missing, missing, missing out. So, yeah. Uh, and there, there is that, you know, and you do put yourself through this training and it is quite arduous. It's long. Um, so it's like, well, I want to, I want to test myself. Right. Sort of thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for me, I, you know, I came from Canada and I did, I did want to see if I could, you know, complete this long training. Uh, and then I also wanted to, I also wanted to test myself on, on operations um, and that sort of thing, you know? So that's kind of where I was coming from for yeah. part, part of my reason, part of my reasoning along with the adventurous aspect of it. I think that's admirable if you wanted to test yourself. It, for me, it was never really about testing myself. It was about maybe this sounds really bad, but just being able to say I've been in conflict. Yeah, no, that's uh, a... I wasn't. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't sort of have any qualms that I'd be able to operate. Okay, I, I was quite. I used to just take things at face value as as a kid, you know, and just go and do them. And I didn't probably mm -hmm. didn't think as much then as I do now. Yeah. Yeah. Well. You're younger, life experience is a little less, as it were. Mm. But 
Yeah. You, so do you want to talk about training or would you like to talk about uh, Afghanistan or? Is, is yeah, it, so, uh, yeah, we can I just take it in a kind of linear fashion if you want. Yeah, whatever. that's the best way. Yeah, so I uh, I did enjoy did enjoy training. Got injured kind of halfway through. It took me a little longer to finish, which was which was fine. Um, just stuck it out. Enjoyed the lot later latter half of training. You know, kind of the more robust fitness of bottom field, the commando test, being in the field, yomping, all that stuff, the sort of soldiering aspect and learning those skills. You know, stalking, doing recce's that sort of thing, section attacks. Uh, I love that. You know, I got a, got a good kick out of it, you know, being really drained and tired and trying to push myself through the exercises. Um, finished training and I went up to Faz Lane. That was my first draft. So Fleet, Fleet Protection Group, Royal Marines. And I was up there for uh, almost two years. It was my first first draft in there. What, and, what, uh, what do you do in that draft, Josh? So they do a couple things when I was there. I'm sure it's probably changed a few times from the time I left. But we did the uh, protection of the UK's nuclear deterrent. So there are nuclear submarines as well as some of the other stuff that they house there. And at the time, maybe they still do it. I don't know. Uh, they did all the boarding parties as well for anti-piracy um, operations. So. Uh, we would go behind the wire for on rotation of five weeks behind the wire. So basically just glorified sentry position sort of thing, you know, a lot of, a lot of boredom, but a lot of fun. And then we would also go on a lot of exercises. Um, so in that aspect, I was quite fortunate. Um, got to go to the States a whole bunch of times, the jungle. Um, and I was also around, was really fortunate to be around some, amazing guys who had a lot of experience um, and they just passed on that knowledge. You know, I was just able to soak it up um, along with a lot of the other guys that I was working with as well that were young, like myself. So, you know, a lot of, I would say mentoring, a real mentoring aspect to what we were doing there. So I was really, really fortunate to, kind of grow and learn as well as, you know, just having fun, like boot next to, you know, type thing. And lots of alcohol, no doubt. Yeah. There was a, there was, there was a lot of alcohol, a lot of alcohol at that time in my life. What's, um, what's British alcohol culture like, or, or, or even Marines alcohol culture compared to Canada? 10, 10 times worse. Yeah. Canada's, uh, doesn't really have a big drinking drinking culture it does in little pockets depending where you live and sort of um the industries that you work in you know probably guys on the oil rigs uh you know farmers ranchers you know that's gonna have more of a drinking culture than you know just guys in a city or whatever you know there's not that pub culture like there is in the uk you so, have that kind of um like fizzy light beer as well don't you in yeah there there is yeah you know not like the heavy loggers you know. it's okay i mean what yeah. you ne what's the name of the the popular beer over there used to come in a blue can um yeah. kokanee coors light 
Molson. I don't know. I don't drink anymore, so I don't. Okay, no, I, just, I don't. Even, I don't even know. It's only that I I traveled um I traveled in Canada and uh, when I was quite young, and I just remember we drank a lot of this particular preps, preps, preps. No, Pats, Pats Blue Ribbon. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, actually, I think that's American. Ah, it's kind of irrelevant. I just wanted that that blast from the past, but gotcha. Um, yeah, drinking culture. Did you have a commander test that was your nemesis? Um, not, not really. I think the only well, I dangled on all of kind of thing, but. Um, I remember like halfway, maybe through the 30 miler for probably not that long. I started dangling a bit and then kind of got my second win halfway through. At least that's how I remember it. Somebody else would probably remember it. Mm-hmm. Oh no, he was hanging out the whole time. Um, and then maybe, uh, maybe the Tarzan. I did enjoy like the first half of it, you know, through the high obstacles and all that. Like, I really like that sort of thing. And then the uh, when you dip down into the bottom field, you know my lungs were blowing out. Then you know, lungs and legs. I don't but, think uh, you. I don't think you were alone, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably most of the lads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But you know, um, endurance was. I didn't find that too bad. Um, and the nine mile speed marks that was pretty pretty easy. You know, you're you're pretty fit. Mm-hmm. And you, how tall? Are you? Yeah, I'm six foot three. Wow. Yeah, pretty tall, pretty tall and lanky. Mm. So did you find pull-ups okay? Yeah, I was I was all right at pull-ups. You know, I was a climber, a bit of a rock climber beforehand. Um, pull-ups were all right. Rope climbs, rope climbs were all right. I enjoyed that. Um, even with the weight, that was fine. Um running, I was a pretty horrible runner kind of early on in my career. Um, definitely in training I was, but yomping while well, I was all right at yomping. It was fun with that. Probably the long legs. Yeah. Pays to have long legs. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So how did you, uh, how, which unit did you go to Afghanistan with? So after FPG, I actually went to SFSG. Oh, um, you did. Yeah, yeah. So I went down. I went down there, um, maybe towards the end of '08, sort of thing. Is there some kind of selection for that, or tests to get in? Um, yeah, I don't know what it's like now, but we just had sort of like a bit of a selection, not like the UKSF selection, nothing like that. Um, it was just a, or yeah, when I did it, it was open to all of the core. And uh, it was just basically doing all the basics, making sure you did all the basics uh, kind of exceptionally well. So your navigation, all your weapon systems, shooting, a uh, bit of command and control, leadership, uh, as well as a lot of written written tests, sort of thing, your military knowledge, um, and that sort of stuff. I think it was over, it was a couple of weeks, something like that. And... What's the kind of mindset then? What kind of guys, because this, um, I find myself talking a lot more about this um, special forces support group. 
quite mm-hmm. a lot lately. And I don't know if you saw my podcast with Dave Radband. Okay, yeah. No, I don't know him. No. Yeah, he's um he kind of opened my eyes up to a lot of um a lot of the job role. Mm-hmm. Is there a kind of personality that that, that goes that goes for that role? Um, I think maybe more, and I could be totally wrong, you know, just my opinion, maybe someone who's a little bit more proactive in what they, what they want to do in the core kind of seeking, seeking out more of a, wanting to do more of a specialist role, um, learn, learn more because you do do a lot of learning there. You know, you're taking a lot of courses and this sort of thing. You're operating in a lot of different environments and different roles. So, you know, maybe, maybe that sort of, a, maybe that sort of a guy, a guy that wants to test himself, you know, put himself up against, mm-hmm. against it. And um, a guy that probably wants to, you know, operate because it is a, it is a very, very busy place. So that sort of, that sort of thing, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, you go there knowing, yeah, I'm going on ops. Uh, they're going to be, they're going to be pretty kinetic, pretty different. Um, you know, fighting's fighting, but there's going to be a lot of it sort of thing. Where, where did you say they were based? Yeah. So they're, they're based down in Wales. In Wales. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, is that so that they're near the regiment or is that nothing to do with it? Yeah, it might be. Yeah. I'm not a, not a hundred percent sure. Probably it's, close proximity to Brecon sort of thing, that training area, a lot of ranges there and different things. Wales is quite unique because it's the only place in the world where everywhere is uphill. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I, I, I really enjoyed, enjoyed living down in Wales. I found the people really nice. Um, Cardiff was a really nice city. You know, it was, it was small, had a lot of its unique culture. Um, and getting out in the hills and stuff was really nice as well. You know, pretty beautiful. And uh, you know, it was wet like the rest of Britain. So did you you get did you get to meet many SAS and SBS operators? Yeah, you interact with them in different capacities, sort of thing. And uh, I did a bit of work with them, not too much, you know, because we did a lot of our own our own ops as well, mm. sort of thing. Um, so that was that was a quite quite a unique experience seeing a bit of that world um, being able to to work with them but also on ops being able to work with the wider green army as it were different regiments different units as well so you know I wasn't just just in the core as it was and working with just marines but being able to work and see the whole picture We'll get a better grasp of the whole picture of what's going on. So that I really, I really enjoyed that. Is there any kind of elitism between the two, the two uh, groups there? Which, which two groups? Uh, what What I'm trying to say is, 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 do you ever get looked down upon because you're you're you've not done selection, or is it? it I'm I, I'm I'm guessing you don't, but I just wanted to ask the question. No, no, no. No, I never had any anything like that at all. You know, they um from what I gathered from it, it was just like, hey, you're here to do a role, you know, get it done sort of thing, or you know, we're doing our thing. You know, it's two two separate entities 
sort of things sometimes coming together. And who can join the SFSG? Um, at the time, it, I don't know about now, but at the time it was uh, Royal Marines in Paris. Um, we also had some uh, guys from the RAF Reg there, so some RAF Reg gunners and then the JTACs, so the guys that uh, speak to the aircraft and control the airspace so they can um, call in fire from either attack helicopters or fast movers, so the jets, A-10s, whatever, as well as, you know, uh, getting like a feed from a predator or whatever sort of thing. What's the predator? So it's just a drone. Um, and that can give a feed from a camera or uh, put munitions onto a target. How How is the troop troop or, or the company set out in the SFSG? Uh, like a regular regular unit you know you have your um, you have your support companies so mortars heavy weapons uh, sniper cell and then you have your fighting companies sort of thing so that's how that works it works just like a regular fighting unit so like a 40 commando 4245 or whatever how how is it with the different kind of language between paras and marines and a different culture them being army and us being navy obviously well being being down there those guys work you know we've we've worked together so much you know um we had paras attached to us and our guys would be attached to some of the para companies and now they're i guess blended together but yeah it was just same same job same roles you know there's banter all the time you know but uh no animosity because you're you know you're working together you're doing the same job um and pretty much you're doing what same sort of stuff i'm guessing you don't do a lot of kind of drill and marching it's it, there's a there's a degree of informality but when you do have to kind of stand to attention or whatever do you both do you both do your different drill i never did any drill down there type thing Did yeah we just say up to attention that way oh, yeah 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 um i don't even know i couldn't march for shit anyway but yeah it was just uh yeah we just just kind of winged it i guess sort of thing uh, okay it's kind of in its infancy isn't it i just wonder if you had to go say to see the co are, are you do, uh, do the oh army? yeah do the army do their drill and the marines do theirs? Because it's 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 not massively different, but they they do that. You know, they raise their knees a lot and all that. Yeah, and a little bit more vocal in their sirs and stuff like that. Yeah. No, I remember I went had to like stand out attention and stuff, and I just cracked my own sort of sort of thing, and nothing was said. Mm. Gosh. Yeah. And did you go on many active? operations or was it just afghanistan yeah so i, I just went to uh, afghanistan uh i went there in 2010 2010 it's it's very interesting that we can have this conversation it's quite pertinent to me now because i saw i had somebody cropped up on one of my videos in the comment section and they wrote a comment which I'm not 
I was I'm not quick to dismiss people, right? If you if you mm -hmm. want to have a dialogue, that's you know that's that that's that's fine. So long as you're polite and you're respectful, that's you know I think everyone's got the right to, to question things. And and this person was mentioning some pretty horrific acts that had been undertaken. This person, I, I don't know whether it's male or female, uh, said it was the SAS, right? So I, I said, sorry, could you expand on that? Because obviously there's lots of people in the SAS there's, and, and there's several SASs all around, around the world. And she said, uh, I'm guessing it was a girl. I don't know why, but they sent a, a, a link. Um, and so I clicked on the link and it took me to this YouTube video. And it was a, an expose that's been done in Australia on the Australian SAS's behavior in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And it it was yeah, pretty fucking appalling to be honest. Okay. Now we're talking like you know, executions, um shooting people's dogs just because they could shoot them. Yeah. You know, even like dogs that were chained up that weren't didn't pose any threat and um I, I state here and now I only saw what I saw in the video and 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 it, it's there in the video it's it's quite and they've got all the um head cam footage I don't know how that this TV program got hold of it but somebody has obviously felt the need to somebody within the unit felt the need to expose this behavior and mm -hmm. it, it um you know, and there's there's basically three characters that it, this these allegations center on, and all three just seemed to be over that line we mentioned earlier of sociopath. You know, um, yeah, um, and I, I just, I, I, I know, I know, I've I've been in conflict. I I know. I know what, what my own experience was and I know that it's not um, people don't always behave in the most perfect way. People get carried away. People get bloodlust. People get. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 people cross the line, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. It, it, did, did you experience anything like this no no you know you'd see you'd see like obviously brutality you know the nature of war mm. especially in a very very busy operational place uh, such as like the roles I was doing um, but no I never saw anyone step out I, of line get over Get out of hand, as it were. Yeah, I, I should add, um, I'm only asking because I've got the opportunity to ask, right? You know, it's not, yeah, every, yeah. Day, it's not every day I meet someone who's been in your position. Well, actually, actually it, is, it is at the moment, but um, <laughs> it, it's just, I'm very big for peace. You know, I'm a, a, I'm yeah. a, I'm a huge pacifist. I, I think all war is constructed, and, and I think there's enough evidence for that if, you, if you're willing to look. Mm -hmm. um, and I saw Ben Griffin do a speech once. So he's this former SAS man, 
and he okay. said it, he got his suspicions up in the Middle East. I think it was Iraq he was originally, where they'd go out on these missions every night. The Brits would come back, having not found their target. You know, their targets either turned out not to be targets, or or they didn't find them. And the Americans would come back in the morning, having shot X amount of people dead. And gotcha. his his question was like, "Hang on, how who who are they shooting?" And I think we. You know, I think the answer to that question is probably quite straightforward. I think they're taking the chance to just get a kill when they could get a kill and they weren't being, you know, strictly operating by the rules of engagement. Yeah, um, yeah. This is, you know, yeah, when I was there, like, um, the rules of engagements were pretty strict, pretty, pretty clear down the flipping line, you know, like, um so yeah we had to we had to operate just like every everyone else sometimes our rules of engagement would change depending on where we were going sort of thing um and sometimes some of the areas I was operating in um it was just straight up taliban there you know there was nothing else nothing else going on but you know like no ieds just straight up old school gunfighting sort of thing you know and then other times it was interacting with the local population and this sort of a thing. And I can, you know, I see your point about, you know, uh, being, you know, all for peace and um, maybe what that Ben Griffin guy was saying. And, you know, I've been torn as well between um, wars and this sort of a thing. And, you know, my mind's shifting and just thinking things through, you know, now it's been, 10 years or whatever since I've been there, been, been, been in, uh, been on ops. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think about though is like, yeah, maybe we could have, should have, maybe not have been there, but at the end of the day, you know, they were absolute brutal enemy, brutalizing local population of people that just wanted to farm, live their lives with their family, grow their family in, pretty appalling medieval conditions. Um, and, you know, I witnessed a lot of that as well, brutality towards the local population who are torn between us or the Taliban or, you know, trying to better their lives and just not getting any respite from a pretty brutal enemy, savage sort yeah. of thing. So... Yeah, I had a fellow Marine, you know, one of our oppos on the podcast the other day who said he was in a compound or in a, you know, a farmer's sort of compound and they were talking to the farmer and it, they heard the Taliban saying over the radio, right, when the when the, the Brits have gone, we're going to pay the farmer a visit, which must, yeah, yeah. the guy just broke, broke down and I, it must just have been terrifying. I guess the question is, it, that's the conundrum, isn't it? Because, yeah, it, it'd be lovely, wouldn't it, if we went in there because it was because of the Taliban's brutality. And we, I mean, that's, a, that's, um, when you yeah. say, you know, when you know the people, it's not, it's not just George Bush and his crime, crime uh, family. Um, it, it's people way higher than that that control the Bush, you know, control the American president and 
I kind of can't ever believe that their motives were about yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, about the talent. I think I think I think you. I'd have to be very naive. I think you have to be quite naive to believe that it's about democracy and freedom. Yeah, like I mean, you're not spreading democracy to a tribal um, tribal area. You know, that's just not what they want. So why, why would you give it to them as such? You know. But for me on the ground, um, you know, just my interactions with the locals and seeing what these people were, the Taliban, you know, what they were doing. It was like, okay, this is what I've got to deal with right here, right now. You know, what I've got to live with for the rest of my life, seeing the effects of whatever. So that's how I could, that's how I could see it and kind of get on with my reasoning for I guess, operating as such, you know, and in the same, you know, in the same breath, like, you know, there is a definite threat um, to, to us here, um, you know, whatever it may be from whatever kind of state actors or groups. So I think it's maybe a bit of a line here and there but i get what you're i get what you're saying i just want you know it's like a lot of young people look up up to me josh yeah yeah. and i can't be i can't be yeah yeah you got not telling them my truth you know because they might a lot of them are going to join the marines and and if Mm. they get their legs you know blown off next year i don't want them coming back to me and saying why the fuck did you set you know why did you send me out there? Why do you t- and it's, yeah, um, you, you can't be like, yeah, it's great, it's 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 rosy and the you know it's the world's a perfectly defined right and wrong sort of you know or well, whatever. It, it, it's just such an irony. The Marines is such a great career to have as a young man. It undoubtedly not. I mean, okay, there's aspects of it like the seventy percent of the time you're really bored or you're not doing anything or. You know, you're wishing that you could go home for the weekend and instead you've been put on some terribly tedious guard duty. And, you know, we yeah. know all of that, but but that's just part of it. As a young man, it's a very proud thing to do. You were great mm. for the for the most part, a great, a great bunch of guys. Um, you wear the green berry and it's 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 cool. You know, it's just that the. The, the roles that they've been put into, you know, that the, the Marines have been sent to do, it's it's not right, you know? It's just, it's just, and, yeah. um, and uh, that's it. So I guess what I'm trying to say is this is nothing against our wonderful armed forces. This is against these psychopaths that are in control of us that, you know, that play play the whole globe like, like a game of, you know, a one-sided game of chess. Um, but, uh, yes. Yeah, so can you tell us a bit, you know, what, what were your experiences there? What, what yeah, I, uh, yeah, I got to work all throughout mainly Helmand province. Um, and I had a, just a huge variety of different roles that I got to do. So I was, I was really fortunate within that, you know, I wasn't just, um, stuck at one sort of patrol base area and just going out on foot patrol here and there. 
Um, you know, so I was quite lucky in that. Um, some of the things I did was mobility operations. So working directly out of vehicles, um, pushing way out into the open desert, you know, living out of those vehicles for kind of months at a time sometimes or a month or so at a time, uh, working in urban areas, uh, doing kind of direct action kind of raids as a sort of, uh, as well as uh, rural built up areas as well. Uh, I got to mentor a, you know, small team of our Afghan counterparts in a kind of small kind of recce role, reconnaissance role with them, um, as well as working in a sniper team. I wasn't a sniper, but they needed a, a number two, so a spotter to work with one of our guys. Um, and I did a few courses that were leading me down that kind of path anyway. Uh, so I got to, you know, got a huge circle and viewpoint of lots of different stuff. So I really, really enjoyed that. Well, I just wanted to ask, what's it like to work alongside a sniper then? Are, are these guys as good as we're led to believe? Yeah, you know, you can't even see them snuggling through the grass. <laughs> yeah, no, really good. Switched on. You know, it's, uh, I guess you could say maybe like the purest form of soldiering type thing, you know. Um, and I was really fortunate to be working with some really uh, talented, experienced people, both from Pararedge, Roth, and uh, from the Corps, as well as guys, you know, like myself, that was their first tour. So they're either young in the Corps or really young in the eight, in age. And just seeing, being able to look up to all those guys uh, as they pretty much step up to the plate and take on huge amount of responsibility, um, a lot of forward thinking, and really proactive in their job, you know. So that was that was absolutely incredible to to witness and be part of. Can you, you know. tell us about the actual mechanics of a sniper shot? Then did you see any, you know, shots in you know one shot in a million or something? No, nothing. No, no one shots in a million. But you know, we do. You know, take stuff like a wind reading for the guy as he's moving in onto a target, sort of thing. Uh, have a little laser range finder to get the distance for him. And then uh, I'd be working as his protection or, you know, following up a shot or doing a, two shots at once or whatever onto two different targets sort of thing. As we overwatched as a patrol moved in to an area or, you know, as they leave, we kind of stay behind and, you know, make sure there's no follow up mm. as well as doing, you know, moving through the night onto sort of a recce going into an OP, that sort of thing. So a little observation post did, type thing. Did you see many follow-ups then or people? Yeah, we definitely definitely did. You know, some of the areas we were working in were heavily heavy with uh, enemy. So, you know, we watched, watched them doing their kind of sentry positions, move about at night. And we're watching this all unfold through our night vision. Um, as well as in the day, you know, we watch guys as our patrol withdraws, watch them trying to move in and set up with weapon systems. So, and then we just kind of did deal you, with it then. Did you have to, to radio through for permission to shoot or was that put down to you? Yeah, that was, that was, that was put down to us, but we would also, you know, let the, the boss, 
know what was going on. So, you know, they're just not hearing a gunshot or whatever, right? We we'd feedback all the information so everybody knows what's happening on the ground. Um, that yes, the enemy is moving. It is setting up uh, where they're coming from, and then the boss can decide what he wants to do and how he wants it to play out, sort of thing. Is that? I mean, it, 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 I'm just thinking back to my own service. I guess it's just it's just the job, isn't it? At the time, mm-hmm. is is. Has that had an effect on you? I mean, that's. I would say kind of yes and no kind of thing. Um, I do think about it, you know, you can't go down the the rabbit hole, but you do just see it as, as a job. And the way that I've kind of thought about it, I guess, is, you know, kind of big boys rules, you know, it's a big boys playground they're there to scrap and they're to scrap, you know, type thing. So, um, can be a bit of a nasty, nasty business, obviously, but nature, nature of the nature of the job, you know? Yeah, of course. And kind of like, uh, I speak to people now, sort of my whole story, which we keep going through, but, you know, I, I kind of talk about it as, you know, these sort of things is just kind of tapping into this, surreal and primal states of being you know you know because it is it is quite primal you know it's kill or be killed you know you don't have to worry about anything else just this job that you're in you know that's kind of quite quite primal you know there's it's pretty black and white right and then you know still within the surreal aspect of it is you know the fighting the intensity of it and how calm you can be within all of that chaos you know um where you can make you know pretty clear calculated decisions when it's like it is it is insanity and you can you can step back from from those situations make that choice and then go to it do what you need to do Mm -hmm. relay information you know so yeah, it's a was an interesting time. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I guess irregardless of the, the the politics of the situation, these <laughs> Taliban are not. I mean, they're not very nice people, are they? Yeah, no, not at all. Are they nice to anyone? I mean, do, do the villagers do they all hate them, or do they just is it a hand in glove relationship? You know, some sometimes when I would be able to speak through our, our interpreters with, with villagers. And you could tell that they genuinely just hated, hated them. You know, they just wanted to get on with their life. They just wanted to be left alone. They wanted them out of the area type, type thing. Could you just for our, um, well, you know, for, for all, all, I was going to say our younger friends, but could you just explain who, who are the Taliban? absolute lunatics, you know, uh, pushing, they just wanted to push their ideology. Um, If that stems from a religious aspect or a political one, you probably go down that rabbit hole. Are Um, they extreme? There is, 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 
Islamist extremist, right? Yeah, you could say so that. Fun, yeah. fund, fundamentalists. Very fundamentalist and a very old school ideology. Mm. Um, other than that, really, I don't don't really know much. You know, I wouldn't want to say type thing. Um, yeah, fund, just fundamentalist. Did you find, um, did you go against, uh, did you find yourself accidentally going against the culture there? And uh, Because it's, it's very different, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it is very, very different. But I mean, people, people are people um, wherever, wherever you are, you know, and a lot of them were just genuinely friendly, even with the language barrier you could you could tell that they were genuinely smiling laughing with you having a joke whether they're an old man a woman kid whatever you could sit down and still you know break bread with them or eat some grapes or whatever and kind of joke around whether that's the guys you were working with which were local nationals or local population sort of thing and what um what base were you operating out of i worked all over all over sort of thing so i worked out of Bast bastion canada or canada no not canada lashkagar and then pbs and checkpoints and other fobs all throughout all throughout or just straight out of the open desert did you have a kind of like a sleeping kit that you just put on your back and humped to where wherever you were going next yeah, I was there. I was there in the summer, so I was pretty much just sleeping in my clothes, sort of thing. So yeah, I didn't didn't really have anything when I moved around on the ground. Like, um, I pretty much just had a light light little set of body armor. Um, sometimes like a little backpack, day sack, or whatever, um, or a little claymore bag that I had extra magazines in and that sort of thing. A little bit of food. And that was pretty much it, just so I could run around pretty quick. Did you have a cooker? Yeah, out of the vehicle when we were living out of the vehicles and stuff like that. I would of have course, a cooker yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah, but I didn't. I didn't carry any of that stuff around. Can you tell us what weapons you used? Yeah, I used a variety uh, G three, four one seven, C eight little little small carbine uh, pistols. Uh, 66 which is like a shoulder rocket sort of thing we had javelins 50 cals gmgs so 40 mil grenade launchers off of vehicles so just huge variety of everything what what was your rifle sorry uh i did g g3 or 417 what, and some and some sorry who make them heckler and cock okay it's hk yeah yeah, when I was talking to Dave, he he mentioned a seven point six two Heckler and Cock. Is that the one? Yeah, that'd probably be the one. Yeah. God, I yeah. bet that's one hell of a weapon. Yeah, it's good. You can push. You can push out a decent distance with it. Um, you know, it's it's small enough you could clear rooms with or work in kind of confined spaces, sort of thing. So it was good. So, how many firefights were you involved in? Flipping, I have no idea. A ton, yeah. you know, um, hundreds maybe. And I don't were, know. 
I mean, the what the ones that you see that I've seen in in the TV documentaries, they they seem kind of sporadic. As in, yes, I mean it's a firefight, but the enemy seem to be quite some distance away and almost firing pot shots kind of thing. I mean, don't get me wrong, if a pot shot hits you, it's gonna it's gonna take yeah. your head off. Um, yeah. but it it I have I, I mean, was there much close quarter stuff? Yeah, so we would have stuff that was quite sporadic, you know, just kind of guys just shooting and scooting around, moving around, maybe a couple fighters moving around or whoever. Um, and then, yeah, we had close stuff, like really, really flipping close. I mean, almost point blank sort of, sort of stuff, you know, um, as well as, you know, your full on all throughout the day, moving and maneuvering around the battle space, you know, tree line to tree line, you know, compound to compound sort of stuff. How, um, go on. How, do, how does the Taliban even get to move around when when you've got drones in the sky that can see where where they are? I mean, if, as long as there's yeah. cloud cover, of course. Yeah, and not, we didn't always have the use of drones as well. But um, they can move through tree lines, uh, quite quite thick tree lines, and then in the in the green zone, um, I don't know what the overhead view down would be like, but I would imagine because it's so thick in there, it's like a, this is along the Helmand River, um, and a lot of the farming and irrigation areas were so overgrown. I remember going through some areas, and it was it was like the jungle. It was so thick, you know. 10 foot high cornfields and thick overgrown everything. So I would imagine it'd be difficult to see anyone moving around and, you know, they've, it's their backyard. They've got it all set up, you know, they know where to go, how to move around. You know, they might just drop off weapons and then blend in with the local population and then have somebody pick up those weapons and move them somewhere else to another firing point or, They've already got them set up, sort of thing. Did you lose many guys? Uh, we lost we lost one guy through an IED. So we were very very lucky, very lucky in that in that aspect. So, um, and I think maybe that might have been down to us, you know, moving around quite a lot in a lot of different areas, sort of thing where. You know, if you're working out of the same kind of area or patrol base or whatever, and you're kind of trying not to have a set a pattern of life or a patrol pattern and stuff, you know, that's going to be quite hard in a limited area. So in that aspect, you know, I'm kind of thankful that I didn't do a tour like that because that would have been that would have been really hard and, you know, being only in those areas, you know, seeing those guys work so hard, you know, hats off to them. Definitely, you know, having to go out every day, you know, and they know that there's a huge IED threat and they've lost, you know, a handful of mates or, you know, sort of thing like, man, that would have been, that's, that would have been tough. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I've heard, um, it referred to as hopscotch in a minefield, but it, 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 
it's very real, isn't it? I mean, you go, you're going out on patrol and people are getting blown up. I mean, that's, it's, yeah. um, it's all very, very real. And that puts you in a very uh, heightened state of alert all the time. So it's just very, very stressful. Yeah. Job. You know, we had, we had strikes on vehicles and stuff and no one, no one got injured. And so really, really lucky. Mm. What we just just to sort of maybe I don't know if you want to close on Afghanistan now, but what what was your kind of most horrendous moment there or most action packed moment? Is there anything? Uh, yeah, I had a had a few. Um, a lot of a lot of those memories now have kind of blended all into one or one or two, you know, just things. But you know, stuff like. Um, you know, leading, leading like a group of five or six Afghans, you know, through the night, through a cornfield under night vision, you know, and you've got other teams of guys moving onto a target, you know, a hundred meters on either side of you or behind you. And you're kind of working your way, you know, that's a little bit, a little bit hairy sometimes when I remember going down this ditch, actually, it was like a crossing, little crossing point. It was quite steep and I remember just taking a knee at the top of this ditch, watching the guys go down and making sure they were going the right way. And one guy went one way and the other guy went the other way. And I was just like, Oh my goodness, you know, and uh, the rest of them go down and the other guy hadn't come back yet. And I, it was my turn. You know, I was at the end and I was just kind of waiting there like, okay, where are these guys going? Where's this guy going? And, you know, eventually he came running back and, you know, not too hairy, but kind of like, Oh, flipping hell you know this is this is what i gotta deal with um um some pretty some pretty intense scraps you know uh just love you know i to be honest i loved it you know (laughs) it was it was good you know i remember you know standing on rooftops and just getting just sprayed all around me and hammering tree lines you know like less than a hundred meters away and you can see multiple firing points and stuff like that. Um, that was good. Um, it's like a, in one respect, it's like a big adult game of playing soldiers, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it so it's the video clip that Ben sent me the other day of them. They're, they're being contacted as they, as they're getting on the chopper, you know, so the, yeah. Uh, exfil is that the word when you're taken out of a you know exfiltrating and the the they're under fire from the Taliban and they all and his head cams running and they crash in this chopper get into their seats and they're all laughing their asses off you know it's it's surreal yeah it's weird they're all laughing like wow that was uh, that was fun that was hairy (laughs) but that was fun and of course, the, the 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 other side of the coin is one of you gets winged, dead. Yeah. Suddenly, it's really not. You, yeah. you know, it, it's, the it's, game the game changes right away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this clash of a, you know, clash of emotions, and it it is, you know, um, and it's. I found it quite odd how quickly. For me, and it seemed like a lot of other guys, whose it was their first time, how 
um, how just quickly you adapt to these situations, you know, for the first time being shot or whatever, um, how professional they are, how quickly they just move into what they, what they need to do and how calmly, how calmly they do it, you know, how they're able to take command and control of themselves, but also the situation around them, you know, um, and continue to do that throughout a full day of scrapping continuously. Um, what rank and, did you get to, Josh? I was a Marine. Mm. Marine, you know. Uh, um, so it was, you know, it was, it was enjoyable to see that. Um, I guess one of the... Technically speaking, you should be calling me Lance Corporal. Lance Corporal. In the Marines, that's just court. We don't say Lance Corporal. It's just Corporal. But yeah, I'm going to let you off just for the, the just the, just today. <laughs> yeah, man. So it was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a good good experience. Um, how, much, how much ammo did you carry? Because if you, it sounds like you needed a lot. Yeah, it changed. It changed all the time depending where we're going and what we were doing, and we'd carry lots of lots of extra. Some guys would carry carry extra. Um, I don't know, several magazines, mm. sort of thing. So um, maybe what a couple of hundred rounds. Or, or... Yeah, something like that. You know, sometimes I would carry a little like UGL, so a forty mil grenade launcher. I would just have that on a. Uh, a bungee strapped to me, so not actually on my rifle. And I'd have a bunch of bombs just in the little claymore bag so I could crack crack those off as well, sort of thing. Um, but I just wanted to stay nice and light so I could, you know, we had the ability to do that, you know, not have to carry lots of extra equi- equipment so we could move around quite quite quickly, you know, handful of grenades or a couple grenades or whatever as well. God, that all just takes it to a whole nother level again, doesn't it? I mean, when we were in uh, Ireland, we, we, you know, were contacted um, a, a few times, you know. We never got, never saw a fight. The two times we were sniped at, we never saw a firing point. So you can't, mm-hmm. if you can't see where it, you're being shot from, you can't fire back. Um, yeah, yeah. You guys in a situation where not only can you see the firing point and so you're returning fire, but then you're chucking a, a rocket down the chute <laughs> and firing it, and then watching watching shit explode. And oh and yeah, with your fingers crossed that hopefully there's people exploding in you know. Yeah, man. I remember you know one day. We, we moved into a kind of like a Taliban bed down location. Um, the, the patrol was all broken up, right? Like uh, each little group doing their own task, whatever it was. I remember they found um, like an ID factory full of pressure plates, all the building materials, mortars and all this stuff. And we blew that thing up. And um as soon as that, as soon as we blew up their stockpile, it all went, it all went crazy. You know, we had a bunch of prisoners as well from Ashura that took place. So a meeting with the locals, you know, um, and as soon as we blew that thing up, it just went to hell really quick. 
Um, and it was a full full day of scrapping, uh, constantly moving, trying to outmaneuver them, and they were trying to outmaneuver us uh, on the ground. And you could you could tell that they were squared away the way they were moving around the battle space. And we had uh, A10s coming in doing gun runs multiple times. You know, I remember running through a cornfield, and it was just like I could almost see like where time sort of slows down, and in front of me. It just getting like strafed with whatever automatic weapon fire and this sort of stuff and coming around the corner and all the lads there kind of just getting down to business, doing what they needed to do and things, things like that, you know, it's kind of fun. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, it's one hell of an experience. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. Pretty. Um, so you're not, you, I mean, you're not going to get that in England, are you? Or, or, or in Canada. Yeah. yeah um, no. It's, uh, you know, it's a, um, a full-on lads holiday, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I got I got my money. I got my money's worth there, you know. I got to, you know, experience quite quite a lot of different different operations, different different things. So. And, and for our friends listening, you know, Afghanistan's been in constant conflict for... Forever. For decades now, if not... Sent, I mean, they say the... the they say that you know the Middle East has never seen peace and it never will. Um, bit pessimistic, but so I mean we, we we had the Russians in Afghanistan, right? Yeah, the well the English were there before, probably people before you know. Yeah. So I was under the great. I don't know. I can't remember. Um, yeah, and the Russians were there in the eighties. And the whole the whole kind of um situation with the russians was they had all their military might russia being a uh, a kind of super military power put a massive emphasis on on their their equipment and their troops and of mm -hmm. course they're in this country fighting against villagers um yeah. predominantly armed with just the kalashnikov and the odd um rocket propelled grenade and well, the Russians got their ass kicked, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and then the American, uh, well, you know, the, the the American and their allies' effort. Um, I mean, what what has that all come to? Where are we now with that situation? Uh, I haven't a clue. I know there's probably still a lot going on there. Um, I'm sure a lot of, I don't know, a lot of blood and treasure lost sort of thing you know yeah. um i'm sure some some parts of the countries are secure secure sort of thing but i haven't a clue yeah i bet the uh the uh, op opium harvest is uh secure <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah the cia will have uh seen to that if history is um anything to go by yeah yeah mm. where would you like to move on on to Joshua is is that do you, yeah I, do you, right. so I left I left uh sorry go on well do you say did, you know did did you leave the Marines for any reason yeah so I went uh I went to to forty afterwards for a bit and then oh, you went uh, to the jungle no no I just uh just forty commando so I, I got dropped sorry I thought you mentioned earlier that you'd been in the jungle. Yeah, when I was at uh, FPG, I went to went to the jungle. 
sort of thing. Was that good? Yeah, that was good. I enjoyed that. Just what, pure soul, pure soldiering in Belize, Belize. into Belize. Yeah, yeah. So that was a that was a good exercise. Um, so yeah, man, I went to uh, forty after SFSG, and then I got out shortly after. Um, I got into the security world, private security world. Um, yeah, I don't I don't really know why why I left. I probably should have stayed in. You know, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed soldiering, um, type thing. But I just wanted another kind of adventure to see what was see what was out there, what was going on. Um, so I ended up uh, living in South Africa, um, and I worked all over Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, and the oceans in between, doing the uh, maritime security work, so the anti piracy, uh, as well as a couple other things. And I did that for three and a three and a bit years, maybe, sort of thing. Did you see yeah. much action doing the anti-piracy? No, not really. You know, I could see, I could watch, you know, little skips smuggling, uh, probably narcotics or contraband people as well from North Africa into the Middle East or vice versa. Um, nothing, nothing really to write home about, you know, mm. sort of thing. Were you um, involved at all with the the guys that were taken that? that were put in prison in, was it in India? Yeah, I think it was in India, yeah. No, nothing to do with that. I don't really know know much about that, but I just, just heard about that. My friend, my friend Stu, very, very nice guy that I know, that I've served with, he, he was on that ship as a private, you know, as a pirate hunter. And when they were kind of put under house arrest on the ship. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the guys just went, fuck this, we're off. And they just jumped in the, you know, the little boats that come up to sell you bananas and stuff and, and all that kind of stuff. They yeah. just like just got in the boats and they, you know, they made their way back home. And of course, the, 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 the hardcore that stayed on there got put in prison and they, they then they had to fight, really fight hard to get out, didn't they? Yeah, I heard about that, yeah. I, I don't know. Apologies, I don't know the specifics. Just, just the rough story. But I think Stu, yeah. you don't want to spend time in a foreign prison. That's uh, you don't want to spend yeah. time in any prison, but not a yeah, yeah. definitely not. Yeah. So yeah, I, um, I enjoyed that work. You know, getting to travel all over the world. You know, um, it was pretty. It was pretty busy. Constant flights all over the place, going from one job to the next. Um, what, some, what were you paid and what were you armed with? Uh, sometimes I was armed, sometimes I wasn't. So I could be, I could either go from A to B on a vessel, um, armed or unarmed, or do a circuit on their specific trade route. Or I could fly to, say, uh, Singapore and prepare the crew and vessel for their journey. Um, and that could just be briefing the captain, the officers of sort of the intelligence picture, the threat, um, the potential threat that they could face on their journey, um, as well as prepping the crew on what they need to do to kind of harden the vessel. So we'd make it uh, neon and nigh on impossible for anyone to board and access the ship. So we'd run rows and rows of razor wire around the outside. Um, 
and we'd modify doors and hatches sort of thing. Build a, we'd build a safe room so that if it did get boarded, um, there was somewhere that they could have, uh, they were able to navigate. There was medical supplies, food, water, as well as uh, communications to the outside world. Um, we just had a regular kind of uh, semi-automatic rifle. Camera board was um, seven six two. Um, so that way, if it was a hunting rifle, that it could legally go throughout countries, and we could move them around legally. Um, so everything was above board. Maybe some companies did or didn't do that, or do that. Um, I've seen some real savage footage of pirates being shot in the water. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's plenty of footage on on YouTube, obviously, but there's, there's some that are just well, they're just slow. I mean, I, I'm I'm not taking sides or making a yeah. judgment call here. I'm just saying it how it is. They're slaughtering the guys in in their skiffs as the skiffs sinking, and they're all laughing as they're doing it. Is that is, I never came across any of that like at all. Well, I never fired my weapon onto anyone, but I do remember um, as you can hear all the communications between the different vessels, obviously on the bridge where you're standing and advising. And uh, there was a vessel that was being taken at night uh, by multiple skiffs um, and they didn't have any security at all. And you could just hear the panic of what was going on and there was no coalition warship or helicopter that could come in and help them out. Obviously they were too far from us and we couldn't help them anyway because mm -hmm. uh, we wouldn't want our vessel to go anywhere near that. Um, so you knew that they were going to be taken, taken to Somalia or wherever and held hostage and put up for ransom. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, any of the, any of that sort of stuff, you know, laughing at the killing of someone else, you know, that's just bullshit. Yeah, you know? it's um, it um, I don't want to say the cut. It, the 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 people that were shooting these guys in the water were from a certain country, and uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't want to say it not because I don't want to offend any, anyone from that country. It's just I'm not one hundred percent sure in my mind, so it's best not 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 name it but it wasn't it wasn't they weren't british guys is what i'm saying yeah yeah i got you i got you it's just you know it's one of those there's it, nothing in life is simple is it the older you get there's no you don't have that clear-cut teutonic way of thinking that you have when you're 18 that there's good guys and there's bad guys and you see these um um you know, what what's the the main country of piracy? Is it Somalia? Is where these guys are Somali coming. pirates, isn't it? Yeah, they're in the Gulf of Aden. So yeah, you I mean you see these people that yeah they've got these ships that are literally carrying a billion dollars worth of oil. Yeah, a hundred. You know. A hundred meters off their shore, using their waterways, and and they get literally zero 
zero four. I, I'm not trying to condone anything here yeah. before, any, before anyone gets upset. I, I'm just saying how it is, and you can see their mentality or yeah. their justification for it, whatever. It's, this is the thing, isn't it? When you've got people that in the world that live in relative richness and people that live in abject, you know, abject poverty, you can see why they want to take these. You know, take the. Ch I mean, it's bizarre, isn't it? They rock up in these tiny little, but you know, these tiny yeah. little boats, relatively um, under, you know, un not particularly well armed, knowing that the the ship that they're going to try to climb aboard with a ladder that they've basically roped, they've stuck a hook hook on the end. <laughs> they're gonna, yeah, it's very basic stuff, and they do that in the knowledge. That there could be a team of ex-military on board, yeah, yeah. going to point their weapons overboard and 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 let them have it. It's it's, it's yeah. But then, having said that, it, it as a deterrent, it worked, didn't it? Yeah, and that and you know that's what we would do. You know, put those big rows of razor wire around the outside. We'd have hoses that we would turn on if there was a skiff coming towards so that they could see. Hey, they're protecting themselves you know and we'd also have you know different measures uh threat escalation as it was as it were you know we would stand out there and present a weapon which they would be able to see that okay someone's armed oh there's two or three of them that are armed with a helmet and body armor like we're just going to take off and we're going to wait for an easier target to come up mm, yeah. sort of thing so yeah i did that did that for did that for a couple of years um, and then came back to Canada. Same thing. So yeah, I was out living out from living away from Canada for nearly 10 years, 10 years sort of thing. And uh, came back home and yeah, it was a bit of a culture shock, you know, living, living the life O'Reilly, maybe you could say for a while. Um, yeah. You got to start living with Canadians. That, that's, um, can't I know. Be, can't be easy. Yeah, definitely not. You know, my whole whole adult adult life was spent moving around. You know, up until this point, um, and yeah, it was pretty it was pretty difficult kind of figuring out. And I had no clue what I was going to do either. You know, I had, I had no idea. Um, Just as a, can you clarify for us what's the situation with Canada's military? I mean, in general, do they have a military? Is it is it volunteer? Is it um, national service? And were they involved in the Middle East? Yes, they were. Uh, we got a military volunteer. Um, they were in Afghanistan uh, from right away, two thousand two, or um, and I can't remember when they left. It would have been maybe. I could be completely wrong, but it was maybe 2012 time, somewhere in that time frame. That's when they pulled out. Um, we didn't go to Iraq the first time, you know, in the 2003 sort of time frame. Um, as far as I know, they've since been been back there in the current conflict Iraq, um, and that was just probably a small group of SF type guys um, or advisors. What, what that role and capability was, I, I have no idea. Um, it's quite a small military um, 
relative to the size of our country and the people in it. But I really don't know much much about them. Um, but when I, when I did come back, I actually had the intention of joining the Canadian forces, and it just didn't it didn't pan out for me. Uh, I have no idea why they wouldn't they wouldn't take me. So probably blessing in disguise, but who knows? But uh, I kind of did also just want to get straight into my passion of climbing, which I started climbing when I was sixteen on and off. And I did a bit here and there in the core. And well, I started doing a lot more of it when I was uh, doing the security work, living out of Africa, I would go on trips all over, all over the world and get into it. Um, so I started climbing pretty much full time. So I was uh, what they call a, a dirt bag, dirt bag climber. Um, so I lived in the back of a vehicle. I had a small truck with a canopy on it and I just traveled around and I climbed as much as possible summer and winter and uh, i managed to get up some of canada's kind of best routes maybe not their biggest what's, um, your, what's your style of climbing so i i did um pretty much all all styles so you're sort of traditional mountaineering um to technical mixed climbing so that's where you have your ice tools and your crampons so those spikes on the bottom of your boots and you move between sections of rock and ice, um, balancing on tiny little ledges and twisting and torquing picks into the cracks, uh, as well as just straight up ice climbing, uh, waterfall ice or other forms, whether it's a big hanging dagger of ice, whatever it is, um, as well as rock climbing. Um, the style of rock climbing that I like to do was big wall free climbing. Um, so crack climbing, putting in your own protection. So either tapered nuts to wedge in or a camming device. Um, so you're putting in your own protection. There's not a designated kind of clip to clip into the rock on what would be a sport route sort of so, thing. So free climbing, you can free climb, but you can take your own. Oh, Okay. So some people would would hear free climbing and they would think of it as soloing without a rope. Is that what you were kind of thinking? Yeah, no, I'm, I, it's just <clears throat> occurred to me with what you said that obviously you can just climb and have your chalk bag and, and that's it, right? Yeah. But then also you can have a few gadgets on you. So if you wanted to stop for a break, you can just clip, you know, clip something into the rock and just, just hold yeah. on there for a while. Or, or if, if you need to reach that bit there and you can't quite, yeah, so it, it'd usually be in a in a crack system or maybe a face climb. So the holds are just on the flat face um, type thing. Uh, yeah, so you would, you know, there would be obviously a little, you'd you're go as far as the length of your rope, 60 or 70 meters. And usually the way the route would be set up, if it was multiple sections, you know, it'd go towards a little ledge system or a wider crack. And that's when you would, change over or hang out as it were sort of thing so that's what i i love doing and uh i probably did more yomping than i did in the core you know uh climbing you know getting into the sort of is it um, is that is that a kind of hippie lifestyle is it a party lifestyle or is that like is that nothing to do with it or or 
Is it's it like a, con- a lot of is it like a lot of things in life where it can can be different for each person? Yeah, it could be a combination of everything. You know, you'd get quite uh, guys that were guys and girls that are quite focused on the objectives that they want to do. Um, some that yeah just wanted to hang out and climb a little bit and you know live that sort of whatever lifestyle they wanted to. Um, some that would do it for a short period of time and go on and do other things. Um, so my sort of goals and intentions within climbing were to be confident and capable at all styles of climbing and push myself uh, to more of alpine, what they would call kind of alpine climbing. So technical climbing in big terrain. So you're moving, you know, you might have a crevasse field to navigate to or firstly remote uh remotely get into you know maybe a day's walking or whatever uh you know you have to navigate a crevasse field uh, maybe a bit of a snow slope you have to work your way up and then you have a big wall of granite to climb and throughout that wall of granite there might be a section of ice on it you know it might be cold snowy on top um so quite quite exposed and within that sort of time of climbing you know it was it was the only other time outside of you know being in contact in afghan where i kind of got into some might say like these flow states or where time really slows down um type thing and you're very focused you know and the whole world is shut off and you're just doing what you're doing um so i can you know i can still remember you know, certain climbs and the movements as I was doing them, the texture of the rock. And, you know, it was like, I didn't even have to wear a rope. It was just, just this beautiful flowy thing, you know, and it was quite, uh, some of it was for what, what I like to do was it was quite militaristic as well. Um, in its approach, you know, there was a lot of planning that would have to go in a lot of trust between you and your partner. Um, and when you're working in, sort of climbing in these big environments there's a lot of uh objective hazard as well you know you have ice fall rock fall potentials you have to move when it's cold so usually you're navigating those crevasse fields when it's cold you're moving under those uh hazards when it's cold so usually at in the dark you know you get up at one o'clock in the morning start get on the rock or whatever when it's a little bit warmer that sort of a thing and trying to get done before it's dark again so i absolutely love that how did you fund this is is there a way people fund this kind of lifestyle yeah so you could work a little bit here and there to just fund it but i mean i was living out of a truck man <laughs> i was probably living on like a couple dollars a day you know buy everything in bulk and just go as cheap as possible to keep keep the dream going sort of thing so I would uh, I I had a lot of savings built up in my security world, mm-hmm. and then uh, I'd work here and then just do labor jobs, you know. Um, and I I loved it, you know. And I I I think it was like quite a quite a healing process as well from my time, you know, in the military um, time outside of it in the security world. Um, just a time to kind of just bring myself back down, calm, calm myself as it were, you know, 
but still having focus and intention on what I wanted to do, you know, because like when I did come back to Canada, I was, I was quite lost. I was really lost. You know, it was a completely new world that I was in. Canada was foreign. You know, I didn't, I didn't really know my family at all. You know, those, those relationships were kind of gone at that point type thing. So it was, it was quite a healing process. Were you close with your family growing up? Did you have a good family unit or was, was it? Yeah, no, I had a really, I had a really good family, very, very, very supportive, but just from the, you know, being overseas, I just kind of pushed that away type thing. Um, I'm wondering if you're, you know, having a stable childhood perhaps helped you deal with some quite traumatic situations without taking them too much on board. Yeah, I definitely struggled with a couple, you know, with a couple things, but having that support network has been, you know, been really good to help me help help get me through whatever whatever did those ever, things. Did, did you ever find yourself, you know, getting chronically depressed or anxious or panicky or did you go down the drink or drugs route? Uh definitely drank a lot when I was in the core. Um, but at times I would be able to just stop if I wanted to go on to a course or whatever mm. um, or go away, I'll just stop. But um, yeah, when I came back, like there was times when I, I could see myself going that way and definitely dipped into that, you know, maybe depression and, you know, um, just cause I didn't, I didn't have a sense of purpose as well as I didn't, I felt like a, I didn't have a, a sense of worth, you know, I was like, I did this, this, and this, you know, I used to do this, this, and this, and now I can't even get a basic job. Uh, What what the hell is going on? You know? So a lot of frustration, a lot of internal dialogue, um, trying to just trying to navigate a completely new world. So, you know, I could see where, where guys can fall off the face of the earth and they do, you know, and I've had friends that have done that, you know, yeah, it's all. I mean, it's awful to spend several years in in a job, and it's very well paid, and it's you know incredibly secure, and and mm-hmm. and you perform a role in it, a professional professional role. Yeah. But when you're not wearing women's clothes, that that is obviously, yeah. and when you're not drunk, and no, mm-hmm. um, and other then, things, then you find yourself in Civvy Street, and you suddenly realise. Yeah, all that training I did, and it just really doesn't count for anything. Is it? Is it yeah, you know. I know main- what you mean. Yeah, I mean, and at the time, I didn't know how to take what I had learned, all those experiences, and there's a lot of really good takeaways. You know, kind of to your earlier point, like what the core, what the core can give people. You know, as a young lad, like great life and all this. I mean, there is a lot you can learn and a lot you can take away and very easily adapt into another role and use that. Um, And I just didn't, I just didn't see it or I didn't want to see it maybe naively and just, you know, internally getting frustrated at those things of why I couldn't. Um, But yeah, I don't know where I was going on that one, but uh, I'll just chip in there and say it's, it's different now. I mean, for example, with what you experienced in combat, just that alone, you could go on the public speaking circuit. 
So long as you can adapt that in some way to what companies yeah. want to hear or what schools want to hear, or you know, th- th- there's a way to earn a living there. Yeah, yeah. It's all very much internet and social media based. You know, this is how the word gets around how you promote yourself. Da, 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 da. Back in my day, we didn't even have the internet. <laughs> yeah. It it well, it was in its in email was in its infancy my friend used to tell me he spoke to, he kept in touch with people through this thing called email and i was just like ah, well i'm, I'm glad oh, yeah. I'll, i'm glad i'll never have to use that yeah, <laughs> yeah. so and here we are it's um but but it's all well and good having the means available to put yourself out but if in your head you've got barriers or you're feeling this certain way then that it's not it's not going to help you is it Mm, yeah 100 you know 100 percent. and then when that happens you usually just focus on that that you know on what's wrong and i know i did that at different points when i couldn't just kind of you know take that condor moment like you do in the core like you do when you're on ops and you can just step back take a breath look around and then you know it it simplifies it sort of thing so yeah that was a that was that was a dicey dicey time you know could have could have went all different directions um sort of thing was but, the uh, timing escapism do you think in in in, in one i'm no, not not i don't say that negatively yeah. no no it um there was definitely definitely aspects of it uh escapism um but there was also a lot of intention of what i wanted to do with it you know it was it was very thought out. I had a plan, uh, realistic goal setting with what I wanted to achieve and how I was going to get there um, sort of thing. Um, so, and so there was that, but there was also escapism where I was just like, stuff it. I'm out. I'm, I'm doing my thing, you know? And I mean, there was, there was times when I did isolate, isolate myself, even within that world, you know, it'd be, it'd be winter time in the mountains, you know, it's like minus 20, minus 30. And I decided I'm going to sleep in my truck on some back road. Cause I just don't want to be around people. You know, I was pretty much full on in hard routine throughout the winter, you know, and then I would just, you know, come into reality to climb with people, you know, trusted friends, but do whatever objective it was that I was climbing at. And then I'd just retreat to myself. Um, maybe that was definitely some escapism, maybe a bit of romanticism on my part of, you know, what I saw and what I loved sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I loved it. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was great. And uh, interacted with some incredible people from all walks of life. Um and you're saying you, you you loved it as in past tense. So do you want to tell us what, what yeah, happened? Yeah, so um, in 2016, I was out in Squamish. That's on the west coast of Canada. It was quite early season in uh, June, June 12th. Um, so Squamish's big granite walls. It's one of Canada's you know top climbing destinations for big wall granite climbing. They have lots of other stuff there as well. And um, I was going to this... You know, I crawled out of the back of my truck. 
sat on the tailgate like I did most mornings and just ate some oats or whatever. And I, I didn't have a climbing partner that day, so I decided to go climb alone. And uh, there was a small band of cliffs that I would go to to practice different rope works and climbing techniques. Um, and the style of climbing I was doing was called rope soloing. So I just managed all the rope work alone. Uh, and I was just going up and down this band of cliffs. And uh, as the day warmed up, a few more climbers came. We chit-chatted, you know. And I remember ascending this rope. And I, I remember being maybe 10 feet or a body length from the anchor that I was at. And it just, it just all went black, pitch black. And uh, I remember waking, kind of waking up. And uh, I actually, you know, one of, probably one of the hardest times that I ever had in my life. Um, I didn't know what was happening, but I wasn't, I was in a hospital. I was in intensive care and I was going through what they call uh, like ICO psychosis. Uh, intensive care psychosis and I could at times see what was going on around me I could hear it smell you know so some of those senses were there but I was basically drifting in between reality and horror and I thought I'd been captured by the Taliban and I was being tortured um, you know some had some pretty intense experiences in Afghan you know being very close to the enemy like face-to-face sort of stuff um, so that, that was all flooding back into me, you know, stuff that was just kind of repressed in, in there. So that, that was going on for quite a while. Um, and I was in the hospital for about a month when I flew back home to Calgary from the West Coast. And I ended up getting an email one afternoon. Is that sort of towards the end of my two months of basically being bedridden? And I ended up getting an email from a climber that saw me fall. So I read through it. Um, And she was basically at the top of her climb looking over at me. And I was at the top of mine. I was hooked in and I was organizing all these ropes and gear, you know, really gear intensive, the style of climbing I was doing. And uh, she said that she just saw me falling straight through the air. And according to the guidebook, the top of the climb is 65 feet. So she saw me just cruising straight down and I landed on my shoulder and the back of my head at a boulder. Um, and I was still awake, still conscious. And she said I was trying to sit up and trying to help, but, uh, I ended up paralyzing myself from the chest, pretty much the chest down. So I couldn't, couldn't really sit up and I was airlifted to the hospital and I was revived twice in the helo. Um, I had some major complications, which resulted in about 13 surgeries. So I had a, fractured sternum, multiple rib, rib fractures. My lungs were collapsed and filling with blood. Uh, layers of my aorta were torn and detached just from the impact of the fall. I had bleeding on my brain, lacerations, broken bones, and all this sort of stuff. Um, so that's when I went into this psychosis, as it were. Um, had two life-threatening infections during that first two months sort of thing and then yeah i read this and i was like oh, okay <laughs> shit got real sort of thing you know but at that point when i read it i i knew what was going on anyway you know i was pretty aware of my situation at that point um and that's pretty much when i started doing my physiotherapy and rehab 
uh, after those two two months. Of Sounds, um, it's quite good you're still here, Josh. Yeah, I'm. I'm. You know, I'm. I'm. I'm really, really lucky. Uh, really lucky for the the climbers that got a hold of me that were there. I think there was four or five of them, and then the rescue service that came in and helped me out. Do you keep in contact with them now? No, I actually don't know who who they are at all. Sort of thing, you know. I just kind of read the email. I was like, "Cheers," and then time to crack on with what I need to do. So your anger had pulled loose, had it? I actually have no idea what happened. Um, months later, I ended up doing about eight months in the hospital, and I came home and I had my bag with all the climbing gear in it and my clothing and all this sort of stuff, and it had all been cut off of me. Um, so I had no idea how to piece it together and figure out what had happened. So that will probably remain a mystery to me till the end of time, which I'm all right with. You know, I don't, I don't remember it. Yeah, sure. Probably, probably a, probably a good thing. Um, sometimes I do wonder like, Oh, what, was it my error or was it an equipment failure or just a random thing? But you know, I honestly don't lose sleep over it. No, it's, it's you know, yesterday's yesterday. Today, uh, the now is the now, isn't it? You know. Yeah. Um, so, sorry. Go on. Well, I mean, I guess the obvious question is, how did they break? Well, I'm guessing they. I'm guessing you could tell in your own body you were paralyzed. Yeah, pretty pretty right away. Did, did, um, did, Sorry to interrupt you, but did you realize that before the medics knew or before? No, I had, I had no idea. Like, I don't remember any of it. Um, you know, I, I pretty much only remember kind of bits and pieces, sorry, from when I was in hospital initially, you know, when I was drifting in between that reality and horror. Um, even that first month, I have vague recollections of it. You know, I would wake up and I would see some of my family there and then I would pass out again. You know, I don't, I really don't remember much of it. You know, um, I remember s- some nurses at different points and different things, but that's just, it's just so, so much vagueness surrounding that time. Um, so that was, that was quite difficult. You know, I, I do remember, you know, those vivid nightmares. Um, and my brother, my brother was actually there uh, right away. He came out and he was watching me actually go through some of these nightmares and stuff. And um, I actually had to be restrained um, because I was pulling out the cords and cables that were keeping me alive. But, you know, even in that, even in those points, it's, it's, it's quite interesting, you know, what how strong the mind is. You know, initially, I remember, like, I'm captured. This is horrible. Like, you know, and then I'm screaming to to like egg, egg the enemy on and, you know, cause I was trying to get myself out of there, you know, even as I was dipping in and out of this consciousness, I was planning my escape. So, you know, I look back on that and I'm just like, man, the, the mind is just, it's crazy what you can, can fall back onto sort of. So Cassidy, I mean, Cassidy Little said, said exactly the same thing. Yeah, when he, when he woke up in hospital, he was trying to. For people listening, if you don't know Cassidy, he's a, a Canadian Royal Marine who got hit by an IED in Afghanistan, and 
Um, he lost uh, l- lost the bottom of one of his legs from it. And he said mm-hmm. exactly the same thing. He woke up in hospital and he had this, just this confusion as, it, as he came to with the, in his case, anaesthetic. Yeah. Where he thought he'd been taken captured. And the, the yeah. funny thing was, Josh, after I heard Cassidy saying this on a really good interview that he did, I had spinal operation. And I'm, I'm listening. On... I'm just sorry. I'm just going to plug in the laptop. I'm listening though. No problem. So, um, they, I, I was lying on the the trolley and had the two anaesthetic nurses, and they're putting the the uh, the, the name escapes me the C thing into my vein. Yep. And um, and I looked at one of them. I said, "Oh, what? So." when are you going to put the anaesthetic in? And they just looked at each other and smiled and went, we've done it. And I went, and I was trying to say, you fucking could have took, you know, yeah. you, you, you're you putting me under, you, you're just putting put me on quite, you didn't even tell me. I'm a bit of a, like, I just like honesty and openness so yeah, yeah. Put, put me under a major anesthetic fucking tell me you're going to do it don't don't do it sneak it sneakily <laughs> it, it was i don't know if they think everyone's nervous about an operation or some something like whatever that. yeah i got it, it cut along so short so it really annoyed me to see these two smirking as though like yeah we haven't told you and and, mm-hmm. and that was it and so when i woke up from the anesthetic i was still in that that uh kind of mindset and i yeah. woke up in i woke up into this kind of like living trauma and yeah. i see nurses passing around and i saw the surgeon walk past and i and i just shouted his name i was like pull pull and i wasn't making sense what was coming but it was because um you know it was because like i say they put me under when i wasn't ready for it you know, they should have just said, right, what they normally go count back from five, five, four, four, and then you, you're gone anyway, right? They just did so, it. So I really can, well, empathize to, to, a, to, to a slight degree with what, what, yeah. what with, with this, this the, the, did you call it a psychosis? Yeah, that's what, yeah, there's a um, ICU psychosis. There's another name for it, but yeah, yeah. How, how soon was it? you realized that you were paralyzed then at that point from waking um, up? I do remember maybe within the second or third, sorry, third week, maybe um, somewhere in there, like being told and then kind of, I remember like recognizing it sort of thing, but I mean, it was really hazy, but I could, you know, um, you know, I could tell that I wasn't able to move. My body. Well, I was so broken as well, you know, so I was just laying there. So, but I knew I couldn't really move my legs and sort of with this injury as well, there's a lot of other complications like uh, neuropathic pain. I was getting a lot of that and they were trying to treat that. So I was pretty, pretty aware, you know, my blood pressure wasn't able to regulate. So anytime that they would try to sit me up in the bed, I would just go faint. So I was starting to starting to become aware of of the reality of it, um, and really wasn't until the second month that I knew 
hey, this is this is the reality sort of thing. Um, and I could just tell, like, no one had to tell me, you know. I'm having to get a medical air flight home, and I can't wiggle my wiggle my toes or legs or anything, you know. Um, and some things just weren't even registering, like that I wasn't going to the bathroom. You know, I had a bag connected to me, and I was probably just going to the number two in a diaper, you know. But I just wasn't even thinking about those things. You know, they weren't registering it until I had to start learning how to do those things. Uh, on my own. And so I, I really, I really did have to relearn how to do everything, um, how to go to the bathroom, how to get dressed, you know, start using a wheelchair, sit up, you know, all these, all these things. Um, and I just saw it, I, I really saw it as just another challenge to get, to get going on. And, you know, I could see, I could see a lot of pain and depression around me when I moved eventually in the third sort of month into the spinal ward, the rehab ward that I was on. And I just knew like, Hey, I cannot fall into this, into this depression. You know, I can, I know where it can, I know where it can lead. Um, so I was pretty, pretty proactive um, trying to get, trying to get myself sorted out. And, you know, I had, I had huge support from my family and lads from the core and outside of the core, uh, some climbers that I knew. Um, and I really wanted to be kind of strong for them in a way, as well as, you know, I looked back on lads that had gotten injured in Afghan. I saw what they were doing, lads I knew and lads I kind of heard about, read about. And I just thought, well, flip, if they can do it, I can do it. You know, uh, I kind of need to, use all this strength that I've had before and now just channel it into something new, you know? Um, and, you know, I was, I was scared, you know, this is, this is something new. Um, and I had to be quite honest, quite honest with myself about that. You know, if I just pushed it away, you know, it's going to be, it's going to come out later and you're just not going to be honest with yourself. Uh, and, you know, that goes for anything in life. Um, so I did, you know, I really had to step back and assess what was going on and figure out where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. And I got I got really lucky early on um, when I was met by people with spinal injuries. Uh, they would come in and visit me and the other patients, uh, share their stories um, with me. And most of them were para-athletes. Um, and right away, I got introduced to a hand cycling group. So I actually started joining them uh, for some rides three months, around the three and a half month mark. Um, so that was, that was really good. You know, I got to interact right away with people that had been living in the community, as it were, straight away. Um, some of them were quite recreational, just ripping around and some you know, wanted to be athletes. And I ended up meeting my first cycling coach there. Uh, and he introduced me to come and train with him and a couple other para cyclists. So three times a week, I'd go while still in hospital. Um, I'd do my physiotherapy and rehab. And then I would go and I'd start training indoors on a bike. Um, so I'm sure you'll shoot up a picture or something, but it's uh, a recumbent bike. Um, 
two wheels in the back, one in the front. You're laying down pretty flat and the gears are just backwards and forwards. And uh, I remember going there the first time and I mean, I had to be helped out, helped out of my wheelchair and onto this bike. And, you know, I could, some of these workouts started going up to two hours long. And at the start, you know, I needed help on and off the wheelchair and I could barely spin my arms. But, you know, I was looking at these younger kids that were there, you know, 13 to 15 or whatever, with a variety of different disabilities. And I was just, I was just seeing like the focus and the intensity of these young guys and girls just wanting to cycle and push themselves. And, you know, the ideas that I had of where I wanted to now go. Um, and I, I could just kind of feed off that, you know? So I kind of didn't, didn't, you know, wait around to not feel sorry for myself or whatever, you know, I was pretty, pretty intense from the start wanting to, you know, recognize what, what I'd gone on, but then just switch, switch my focus and start going down this. So I got lucky, started training right away, um, ended up doing eight months in the hospital and I came back home, started, started really figuring out what life in a wheelchair was going to be like. And, you know, it was, it was hard. It still is hard. You know, it took a long time to go to the bathroom, get out of bed, get dressed, shower, all of this sort of stuff, wheel around in the wheelchair. You know, I, uh, you know, I just didn't have endurance really to push myself around. Josh, do you, do you have um, healthcare in Canada? How does that work? Yeah. So we have, we have a bit of healthcare sort of thing. It's good to a certain extent. Um, I did get a lot of help off the different charities, both in Britain and the Canadian Legion. So that that was a huge help. You know, they helped. Do, do you need to have any kind of insurance policy, or like America, or you can you, you can do you can do. Yeah. Uh, but, but so it's kind of basic, basic like public health service. Yeah. 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 Basic, basic, basic sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I was I was home figuring out what I needed to do and that sort of stuff. And I continued with the cycling um, and I started trying other sports as well. And I was just meeting incredible and inspiring people, you know, along the way. Um, and 11 months post-injury, uh, I wanted to do something, you know, to kind of see if I could still push myself physically and mentally again. So I ended up going back into the mountains. I bought a bike. Um, and I ended up going back in the mountains and I wanted to cycle the length of this Icefields Parkway, which was a road between Jasper and Lake Louise. So two really popular spots in Canada, um, through this beautiful mountain ranges, a lot of places that I had climbed before. Uh, and I ended up cycling and I mean, it was probably my third time ever riding outside. Um, and I never rode up any hills before cause everything was inside over the winter time. Um, and I ended up getting about 150 kilometers done in this ride. I had to stop because uh, the bike had mechanical issues and I hadn't a clue how the heck to fix them. And uh, yeah, that was another like kind of healing and rewarding thing to do. Um, just like climbing was when I kind of came back to Canada. Um, how far was the cycle in its entirety? So yeah, I, the entirety was... 200 something K, which I wanted to do. And I managed to get like 150 K done. I mean, it, it took a long time. I was flipping slow, slow. It was probably like 
12 hours worth of writing, you know. Okay, so you were going to do it in one, one that you didn't yeah. No, no, I wanted to do, I, I was like flipping determined, like I'm doing this, I'm going for it, you know. Um, when I set my like intention, I more often than not, I'm like just focused on that, you know, and visualize the outcomes and, you know, all that stuff, you know, whether it's, you know, my time in the core early on in training, you know, I could see these guys rocking around with green berets and I was like, I want that. I can see myself doing it too being on ops, visualizing things and now this, you know, or in climbing, there's a lot of that. So yeah, I ended up, I ended up doing that and um, pretty much have stuck with cycling since. Um, so that was, it's been almost four years since I've been injured. Um, and now I work, I guess, within cycling Canada, paracycling Canada as a, uh, a development athlete. So pretty much a full-time full-time athlete you know i'm training usually six six days what i mean i'm assuming you enter competitions yeah so uh within psych paracycling uh we have individual time trials as well as road races so individual time trials are usually between 15 and 20 kilometers long somewhere in there maybe a little bit longer and then the road races are 35 30 to 40 plus sort of thing so individual time trial is just you against the clock uh, and then the road races everybody going out drafting cutting each other off and usually a sprint finish so um with the time trial you know the top guys are probably moving at uh 40 kilometers plus an hour depending on the course and that sort of stuff um that's fast. Yeah, it's it is definitely fast being able to hold that power endurance for that's, twenty. That's much faster than me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. I, I so do about ten mile an hour, I think. If I'm, I'm not really good at cycling. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not that fast. I'm. I'm building. Building towards it. You know, I'm still pretty much in my infancy. Infancy. Have you done any that. of these sort of big competitions? I like the 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 the. Invictus Games and stuff like this. No, I haven't done any uh, Invictus Games. Um, I've done competitions here in Canada, um, training camps in the states, um, which which are quite intense. And again, like early on in the core, where I was surrounded by mentors and really great people. Uh, again, I'm surrounded and really grateful to be around excellent coaches and some of the world's top athletes, both male and female. Um, so I'm able to to feed and learn and grow from really, really great people. Um, so I've just been really lucky, really fortunate, um, kind of with all different avenues that I've gone down in my life with that. Who makes the bicycle? So um, there's a company, there's there's a couple of companies, but I have a, a top-end bike. That was the first one that I had, which is an aluminum bike. You can get all regular sort of, gearing that you would on a regular road bike um and then have a carbon fiber bike it's called carbon bike but there's a lot of different different bikes sort of thing yeah, so the difference between carbon fiber and aluminium is quite a lot don't you think yeah it's a lot lighter uh more responsive um so much faster 
Yeah, yeah, it's really good. So it's actually, and I actually haven't wrote it, written it yet. It's in the shop, getting a couple things sorted out on it. So, um, yeah, the intention with that is to push myself as far as I can, again, both physically and mentally uh, on the bike. Um, so can we, Josh, can we just talk about what what challenges do you face when it comes to interacting with other members of the public? Now that you're in a wheelchair, are there things that you know fucking annoy you? Are there is there a certain character traits that people have that are just not really helpful? Can you, you know, no, no, people are people are usually really, really good. I mean, I get really great parking now all the time, which is a bonus. Uh, people, people usually hold the door open for me. Um, you know, if I'm getting into my into my van or whatever, somebody will, you know, run over and ask to put my wheelchair in, you know, usually I say, yeah, cause I'm lazy, but uh, no, usually, usually the public men are really, really good. So there isn't, there isn't any barriers, you know, they're, they're really helpful, thoughtful, you know, so that's always, that's been good. Um, have you, have you not had this scenario where if you're, if you're with a, a we can we say able body person is that? Yeah. Say whatever. Yeah. 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 If, if you're with an able-bodied person, do they do that thing where they talk to that person because they think that you're not? You know, no, no, not at all, not at all. So oh, that's, that's really great to hear. Yeah. So across the board, it's been it's it's been as easy as can be, sort mm-hmm. of thing. So I've not had any any issues with with that sort of thing. And you've been on the public speaking circuit. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been doing a bit of that, sharing this this story um so what i speak on is embracing embracing adversity to push past perceive you know limitations perceived thoughts to build that build that resiliency because you know that i think that really is the key key to growth is you know embracing where you're at however horrible that is whatever it is you know um you know being brutally honest, true with yourself, because from there you can step out of it and start to grow, uh, push, push past whatever's coming up in your mindset, whatever that barrier is. And then you can start building from that, you know, so I talk about building stepping stones, whatever they may be in your life. Um, so different organizations I speak to, you know, I'll change that up to leadership or, maybe a mental health aspect, mm. you know? So that's, that's, that's what I speak on. Spinning, spinning, spinning my, spinning my story. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're a, you're a great person, Josh, you know? Thank you. Well, you just are. Um, it, I'm what I'm finding a, li- a little bit hard at the moment is because I'm now in touch with so many people on a daily basis, mm-hmm. you know, by proxy or by media, by w- whichever way. And it's when, when I get approached by people that just they're in that feel sorry for me mode and mm-hmm. I'm going to wear my disability, whether it's, you know, for the most part, it's a men, you know, it's, um, we're talking a lot of trauma, so PTSD, this kind of thing. Yeah. And it's like I'm gonna wear it as a badge and 
and you're like dude you know you like you you, you don't you don't have to you you, you know uh, uh, no, no no it's like and but i guess the I, what i'm saying is you're the polar opposite you know you're a no negatives yesterday was yesterday tomorrow's a new day i'm willing to learn i'm willing to keep developing my, my mind my skill set i'm willing you know i want to be positive i, I want to, to to live this life and and i can i can that's the you know yeah yeah isn't it 100 um, i'm just i'm the point i'm making for anybody listening if you have challenges you you need to address yeah if you, if you want to get the most out of your one chance at this life you need to address them you need to speak to people you need to read you need to learn you need to watch inspirational yeah. you know inspirational speakers like joss and take it on board and no matter what hurdles or challenges you think you're you're faced with you can get over you know you can get get over them so you know pe- people sometimes ask me you know uh, do you have any regrets and uh you know one one thing i do say is a, a, a regret as such would be you know repeating the same thing over and over again when i know already what that outcome is going to be you know you know what i mean mm-hmm. like yes i do i do fall back and just dwell in some sort of misery and could have should have would have what if you know um but i know when i do that i know as soon as i start tempting that and playing with it i know where i'm gonna go because i've already been there just like when you grow from using those stepping stones you can look back and go oh man i've already accomplished x y and z i've already been through something tough but what's in front of me might be tougher but I know that I can go to that, get through it, and keep building. So it goes it goes both ways, and that's where the, you know, being pretty honest with yourself and the intention that you want. So with that sort of, you know, wearing some sort of badge of honor, whether it's from some sort of mental health issue or just something, whether physical, whatever it is, you know, just got to realize, like, if that you know, if that's where you want to be, man, you're you're gonna. It's not a good place. You already know that. You already know that, and dwelling there isn't isn't gonna move you forward. And no one's gonna to want to be around you. Type thing. And and chucking it on social media all the time. You you might think it makes people feel sorry for you, but it it's just not a good strategy. Do, do, do you think that, Josh? Yeah, you know, I would just shut it off and move on with where I want to go, the people that I want to be be around, um, which most of the time is is a positive for everyone around, you know. So, and you can you can get you can get over so much in your life, whatever whatever the heck it is, you know physical mental you know people you people are so flipping strong you know and that's that's what i look to as well i'm not saying it's uh, for people to look at me and use me as a model but when i've you know been through 
hard training or operations or climbing, you know, I would always go flip an egg. Someone has been here before. Someone has been here before. And yeah, maybe they are incredible, strong, but I can also do that. I can place myself in there and use that as motivation and visualize myself in there doing it, finishing it, feeling good after and going through whatever that journey is. And if I fail, I know what I need to work on. I know that next stepping off, jumping off point, where that is. Mm. When you fail, you'll just turn it into just another experience. Yeah, that's it. Mm. 100%. Josh, it's been absolutely amazing to talk to you. Um, I can't thank you enough on behalf of me and also my my friends out there watching. You're truly an inspiration. Thank I feel you. like I've just found out I've got a brother in, in, uh, you do, you got, you got one out here and, uh, it's, and that, that's lovely. You know, that's re- that's a very special, special thing. Um, you're gonna, or between us, we'll get your links together to put them below the YouTube yeah. video. So if people want you to come and speak or they want to, you know, connect with you in, in, in whatever way that, 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 that they can. Is there yeah. anything next on your, uh, your 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 global agenda my global agenda yeah um so just cycle cycling a lot of training um i'm looking at getting back into the mountains like that initial ride that i did the 150k um i want to smash that whole entire length now in one shot which i'm sure i'm fit enough to do it and then push it further um i've done some hefty size endurance rides already um in past years so that's sort of the next sort of goal for me cycling wise and then whenever we get out of this crazy world we're in and be able to start competing again pushing myself in uh in racing and keep building you know building that process to the end goal of competing at the highest levels um so just a huge thank you to having me on to your listeners for if they've stuck stuck through to the end, listening to me ramble and us us go, and I hope they've got something out of it. And anytime they want to reach out to me, those links and links below, shoot me a message for whatever. I'm more than happy to have a chit chat. So really grateful. Josh, just just stay on the line because I got to hit the record button off, and I'm going to say goodbye. So thank you ever so much again. Absolutely inspirational to our friends at home. Thank you ever so much for watching another edition of the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please don't forget to like and subscribe if you do like. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.thrall. Thank you.